Herber, how y'all doing today? Good morning. Good to see you all, or as well as I can see with the bright light shining in my eyes. Um, as Hayden said, we've moved away from the circles, back to more of the traditional seats and rows, or as Brian called them, pews a couple weeks ago. I was like, pews? Wow, that like is 1970s in the church I grew up in. With the pew. Did anybody grow up in church with like actual old wooden pews? Yeah. I hadn't heard that word for a long time. Well, I'm following Hayden, who did a phenomenal job last week. I loved hearing him speak. I mean, Hayden did it all last week. He, he led worship. He preached. He ran the podcast and interviewed himself. He, I think I even saw him helping in the nursery. And one time I walked by and I saw him trying to burp Brian. So he was, he was getting everything done at the same time. And fortunately for today, all I need to do is preach because you definitely don't want me leading worship. I probably could sling a few diapers around in the nursery, but I'm not any going anywhere near Brian to burp him. So I had to do that on a backpacking trip once and not again. All right, he just ate the granola mix way too fast. I'm like, you have to chew before you swallow. All right. You guys need to know that I love Brian and Hayden a lot. They are great people. We love giving each other a hard time. And if you're like, man, these guys like tease each other a lot. To me, it's like a, it's like a brotherhood, like I'm the really big older, older brother. Um, and they actually might know more than me when it comes to theology, but I love the camaraderie they have. And I just think they've been doing a great job. But Hayden, I want to give you a shout out because truly you did a great job last week in closing out our circle time. So thank you. Today we begin our three-week series on forgiveness that's going to lead us into Easter, the pinnacle of forgiveness for our faith. And I'm hoping that today we can wade through in somewhat of an understanding way. It might feel a little bit more like a theology class than a message, so I'll try not to be like the Old Testament survey teacher that I had in college that would drone on and on and on, and oftentimes the lecture hall would start with about 120, 130 of us freshmen in there, and by the time 60 minutes passed, it was down to about 35 or 40. So hopefully we won't run into that in here. But I did learn a lot from that professor, even though we had to read his own book. I love how professors do that. They write a book and they use that for their classrooms, which I think is, that means they don't have to prep as much. Um, but I had to do a lot of prepping because today we're going to be looking at Old Testament forgiveness. What does forgiveness look like in the Old Testament prior to, all right, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? So our, I have a question that is our essential question. I can never get too far away from teaching that we always try to have some sort of essential question we're trying to resolve or learn about. So here it is. How could there be forgiveness of sins before Christ died if forgiveness is predicated upon Jesus' death? I'm going to say that again. How could there be forgiveness of sins before Christ died if forgiveness is predicated upon Jesus' death? Or in simple terms, how did forgiveness work in the Old Testament? Because Jesus hadn't come yet. He hadn't died. He hasn't resurrected. So what did that look like for saints? And is there anything from Old Testament forgiveness that actually is relevant to us today? Why do we need to go back and look at what they were doing since we live more under a New Covenant, New Testament forgiveness? So that's what I hope to accomplish today. Um, but to begin, I want to begin at the very beginning. In the Old Testament, we can see from the very beginning that God demanded holiness. The first, this first began in the Garden Eden when he told Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he told them that if they did, they would die. 
And that was the only rule that they had in the garden. And they lived by it for we don't know how long until Satan came along to tempt them. So I picked the story up in Genesis 3 where Satan, who's in disguise as a serpent, and Eve are having a dialogue about this rule. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. My point here, God has always sought for mankind to be holy and in relationship with him. From the beginning, God's intent was for mankind to live holy and in relationship with him. We pick up in verse 4, Satan says, you will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan has always sought to usurp God's authority and promote self. Satan has always sought to usurp God's authority and promote self. So Adam and Eve, all right, ate from the tree. Their eyes were immediately open. They realized something had changed. And we pick up in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Mankind has always sought to cover their sins and shame by God. Mankind has always tried to seek how to cover our sins and shame from God. They even go a step further. Then the man and wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden of the cool day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Mankind has always sought to hide their sin from God. Not just cover it up, but hide it. Act as if we'd done nothing wrong. If he doesn't see, he can't say anything. But verse 9, the Lord God called out to them and said, where are you? And my last point here, God has always sought to call mankind to forgiveness and reconciliation. God has always, from the beginning when sin entered the world, he has sought to call mankind to forgiveness and reconciliation. So here's the slide, the point that I want to base all of this on. God has always provided mankind or provided humans a covering for sins through his grace and mercy. Not through anything of ourselves, but through his grace and mercy. And I share that very beginning story with you because if you don't know how all this started, then the rest of the Old Testament just seems like a cruel, mean God. Setting up all these rules and stipulations that people have to live by, which he knows that they can't do, and they know they can't do, so they're in this constant cycle of seeking forgiveness and holiness from a God. But if you don't know from the beginning that God did not create man and woman to be this way, man and woman chose to be this way, and then he, from that moment, sought for forgiveness and reconciliation back towards him. Let's pray. God, I pray as we begin this topic of forgiveness and we look back from the beginning of time and through the Old Testament up to your death, Lord, as we seek to understand forgiveness, would you just move me out of the way, God, and use your scriptures? Would you give us ears that want to hear, hearts that want to listen, and feet that want to put into action what we learned today? In Jesus' name, amen. So, as I said, I share this because this is the foundation of what we build off of. 
This begins several dispensations or covenants or whatever you want to call them or believe in by which God interacts with humans and his relationship with them. I will not wade into or break down the wonderful, lovely debate of dispensationalism and covenant theology. If you want to have those with Jonathan or somebody else, Jonathan McPherson, I love talking to that guy about theology, or anybody else, they're great conversations to have. And they're wonderful conversations to have. What I'm going to be talking about today is whatever we want to call the Old Testament. Testament. From Abraham, I mean from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to the prophets to David and afterwards, that's the era that we're going to be looking at and examining today. And I'm going to try to keep it as straightforward as possible and as simple as I can today with three key takeaways. We're going to look through three lenses of forgiveness in the Old Testament that I think you will see build a ramp into where we're going with the New Testament. But I want you to understand this. That as we do this, we're going to try to connect it all back together at the end to see how it relates to us today. So here's our first point. Forgiveness in the Old Testament was by faith, not by law. Forgiveness in the Old Testament was by faith, not by law. Faith was the foundation from the beginning, from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to prophets. It was all based on faith. God may have eventually given Moses the law that further set forth some guidelines for these sacrifices, but the intent of the law was to show mankind how vastly incapable and how far he was from God's standard of holiness. In the Old Testament, God demanded purity. This was done by various ceremony cleansings and offerings and sacrifices. There were burnt offerings, grain offerings, fellowship offerings, sin offerings, and you can read more about them in the riveting text of Leviticus if you want to, chapters one through seven, all right? That's some great, great reading for you. As they state, sin offerings in the Old Testament were sacrifices made for the atonement and sin. Now, the Hebrew word for atonement is kafar, all right? And kafar means covering, And that same Hebrew word is used when Noah built the ark for the pitch that he put in all around the ark to seal it and cover it. In order that the ark would safely, all right, make it through the flood. It kept out the evil that God was raining down. And that word covering kafar is what carries forward with us throughout the Old Testament. God was continually providing a covering, a kafar, for the people of the Old Testament that would allow them entrance into eternity with him for a future event. I love that picture, though, that even as Noah was building the ark, the ark represented a promise of rescuing from something that was yet to happen. In Leviticus 4.20, we read this about the sacrifices. And do with this bull, because oftentimes they would sacrifice a bull, and do with this bull just as he did with the bull for the sin offering. In this way, the priest would make atonement for the community and they will be forgiven. Even when they were doing that, they were looking through a priest with the faith and promise that they would be forgiven of this. They had to put their faith in an offering that was actually being given to a God, so the faith went from the priest to the God. Hebrews 11.13 tells us this. All these people were still living by faith when they died. All these people in the Old Testament that were following these laws. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Long before the Old Testament was given by, long before the Old Testament law was given to Moses, 
Abraham was justified by his faith. Noah was justified by his faith. Adam was justified by his faith. In fact, we read all about this in Hebrews 11 called the faith chapter. I'm gonna pull some just key things out of here. It starts by this. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. They had a faith in something that had not happened yet. And then it goes down a list. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering. By faith, Enoch was taken from this world. By faith, Noah, when he warned about the things and built the ark. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place that he did not know, he obeyed and went. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months. By faith, Moses, when he grew up, did not become Pharaoh's son, but led Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea. By faith, the prostitute Rahab became welcome when she protected the spot. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, which is the death and resurrection of Christ, since God had planned something better. I share all this with you to simply say it's by faith, not by the law. Let's look at Galatians 3, 6 through 14 together. This is where Paul breaks it down a little bit better. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture first saw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Because it was through Abraham that the Israelites came that were called the chosen people. And it began by saying, by faith, Abraham followed God. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. The law simply pointed out that we were not enough, that we couldn't do it on our own because we were constantly trying to go back and do what Adam and Eve do is hide things from God. Reminds me that when I was a kid, my dad had these tools in the garage and we were allowed to use the tools as long as the tools went back where they belonged. Um, and if we broke something, which inevitably with three brothers would happen, and every now and then a tool would get broke and we would just have to tell dad. However, my dad, I don't even know if my dad and brothers remember this story, um, but my dad had this chisel set that had given to him by his dad, which his dad had like made the handles for. So it was like an heirloom type of thing. And we weren't really supposed to use the chisels, but I was using it to do something with some wood. And I was just whacking away on, I was hitting too hard on it and the handle broke. And I was like, oh man, I messed up. I don't know what I'm gonna do now. And so I took it and I did what I thought was a wise thing. I buried it out in the field somewhere. Because <laughs> I would rather tell my dad, oh, I lost it rather than I broke it. For some reason, I thought that would be a better option. Because in a way, I'm trying to hide what exactly I did by creating another scenario that seemed less worse in my mind. And so I remember my dad eventually be like, hey, has anybody seen my chisel lately? Hmm, no. And I'm glaring at my brothers because there's a brother code, all right? If you don't know the brother code, all right, you just, you don't say what you don't need to say, all right? But eventually I think my dad figured out it didn't just go missing and the story did come out and my dad, I remember looking at me saying, you know, grandpa can just make another handle. I go, I didn't know that. He still does that. He does that. He's always done that and he'll always do that. That's what he does. And I share that, and at the time of the Old Testament, the saints were living under this law that told them you are broken. 
You can try to go hide it and bury it somewhere. In fact, there's a story about that in the Old, Old Testament where a guy buried things in the tent and thought, they, thought, thought God wouldn't know. But what God wanted them to know is that if you put your faith in what I'm trying to show you, that there's something else coming and that you have faith in me as your God, that I'm grace and mercy, then all these sacrifices are simply a reminder that you need me in your life. So go dig up what you're trying to hide, bring it to me on the altar and watch me forgive you. That's what they put their faith in. And we read further in Galatians 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. We're going to just stop there at the verse. It's not the law that provides the faith. It's the individual. The law could not give you anything other than a mirror in which to reflect your own need of a God of mercy and grace. The same thing when Adam and Eve tried to hide, God called them out from hiding and stood before them and redressed them in clothes that he made. That's what the Old Testament saints were trying to do and when they were living. So people under the law of Moses still relied on faith like Abraham and we did today. Without that faith, they would have been cursed by the law. But the law within itself provided no means of forgiveness. People had to have faith in a means of forgiveness beyond the law, namely Jesus Christ. The law foreshadowed the means of forgiveness but lacked a means of its own. The Old Testament saints were forgiven by their faith, not by the law. That's point one. The second thing, forgiveness in the Old Testament was by God's servant, not by self. Now remember, the first thing that Satan tried to do was convince Adam and Eve, oh, you won't die. Your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. This ties back to Satan's first sin when he got kicked out of heaven because he thought, why can't I be like God? That's what I mean by self. This idea that we don't need a God in our life because man is innately good or there's nothing after life to worry about. So we do our best on earth here to be the best that we can be. But that's not what this was. God realized he needed to send a servant, a perfect servant to live for man and die. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that sacrifices were for the removal of sin. The Old Testament was repeatedly pointing towards the New Testament and a Savior, towards a Christ who would come and once for all remove the sins. We find this in Hebrews 11, 9 through 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now there he has died as a ransom to set them free, the sins committed under the first covenant. In the Old Testament, sins were, given, sins were forgiven on the basis of Jesus' future. His death on the cross, of which the animal sacrifices just built a foreshadowing. During the life of Christ, sins were forgiven on the basis of this still going to happen. The disciples lived under this hope. And for us now, we look back on it as the hope for our forgiveness. In Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, we read this. Therefore, when God came to the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you will not desire, but a body you prepared for me. 
Then I said, this is Jesus talking, then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. It was the servant Jesus that was promised to the Old Testament saints that would come and provide a once and for all sacrifice. It wasn't about themselves. They could try to live a holy life. Some of them did live a holy life. They followed the law. They did the best. They did the sacrifices. But it wasn't about them. It was about the Savior that was to come. And Paul says this in Ephesians. He says, by grace you are saved and not by yourselves. Not by works lest any man should boast. It's all because of the Savior. And this was the code, this was the story that was out there throughout eternity from the beginning of time. That the minute Adam and Eve stepped into sin, God would provide a savior. They didn't know when, they didn't know how, they had some prophecy that pointed to some different things, and even when it did happen, they were surprised, and they rejected him. Isaiah 53 predicted this in verses 4 through 6. Surely he took up our pain, talking about the Savior, the Lamb, and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We are all like sheep have gone astray. Each and every one of us turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah prophesied of the Savior, that he'd be like a perfect sheep led to the slaughter. There's also another story in the Old Testament when the Israelites were wandering around the wilderness and they from time to time would get tired of this wandering, which I, don't, I think they get a bad rap for that. I mean, after 40 years of wandering around the wilderness, I think we'd all get a little bit tired of dirt and sand and, you know, tents and sand in my, you know, tacos or whatever eating that night for dinner. All right, manna tacos. I don't know how good manna tacos would be. <laughs> but they began to get grumpy again. And it's one of the most odd, unique, disturbing stories of the saints walking around in the wilderness. And I, it's, I call it just the bronze snake. And when you hear it, you're going to be like, what the what? What is going on here? That's what God did? So to help you better understand why God maybe responded the way he did, I want you to picture instead of Israelites wandering around the wilderness, imagine that you've been on a four-week road trip with your children, and by about the fourth week, they're in the back seat arguing yet again, you're on my side of the seat. Or arguing yet again, that's not yours. Or mom, he touched me. Or I'm so hungry. If you can imagine that, you might understand a little bit more about what's going on here. And then we'll come back to that little story. So we pick it up in Numbers chapter 21, verses 7 through 9. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea um, to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. Children in a car. They spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. Pause. That's where the story goes off track. I'm not telling you to release venomous snakes into the backseat of your car. Well, maybe if they're teenagers. You know, you heard the old story about what do you do when somebody becomes a teenager? All right, you put a box, you drill three holes in it, and you wait till they're 19. All right? Terrible joke, Scott. You can't say that. Because let me tell you something. I love teenagers. 
I spent 20 years of my life working with teenagers. And let me tell you the one thing I learned about teenagers that taught me about the grace of God. They know they're all messed up. They just don't think they know how to fix being messed up, so they try all these different ways. And along the way, part of that is complaining and griping and airing their grievances because they, they're trying to figure out how do I get through this mess of a life and all the hypocrisy and everything I say, and I'm stuck in the middle of it, so what do I do about it? And the easiest thing to do is just to complain and gripe and vent at what's in front of them. And they get a bad rap for it when actually we do the same thing as adults. And we find Israel doing the same thing here. They realize they've created this mess. They've been wandering for years and years and years because they disobeyed God. They didn't put their faith in him like they should. And now they find themselves just frustrated and angry and they're crying out to God. I share that with you because we are no different today than they were in the desert. And we give them a bad rap. And we look at God's response, sending venomous steaks to bite them. Why would he do that? That just seems very brutal and mean and ungodly. But if you go back to Garden of Eden, he stepped in between Satan and mankind and said, done. You will eventually be defeated, Satan. For now, I am going to give them a pathway forward through my son who I will offer as a sacrifice once and for all. That's where his love and justice and sometimes what feels like anger and wrath is coming from, from this deep well of I have to prepare them for the way. So let's pick it up. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole and anyone who is bitten could look at it and live. Really weird, right? Because they're all against idolatry. So what is the point of the story? To distract and redirect and some God thing we're doing here? Read on. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Here's the analogies. The venomous snakes were the sin that was invading the hearts of the Israelites and causing them a spiritual death towards their God. And only when they experience the physical death of these snakes, they start to make a connection. The making of a snake, the very thing that was killing them, raised up on a pole, put your sins up here on a different image, and you will be forgiven. Is a foreshadowing of Christ being lifted up on the cross who venomously was murdered and crucified by the very people he came to save saying on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. In fact, we read about it in John 3.14 where it says this, and this is right before 3.16. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. Do you get what Jesus is doing? Jesus will do whatever he needs to do. God will do whatever he needs to do to get our attention to say it's not about you. You cannot save yourself. It is about my servant, my son, on the cross. And that's what he was trying to tell the Israelites. And we may want to argue about why did he have to use such a, you know, just a mean way to do that. In our eyes, it's mean. In God's wise, it's like, I've got to rescue these people. 
And I've got to let them see that it's not about themselves. It's about my servant, my son. And so as we go from that, all right, I want you to remember that the Old Testament saints, all right, were forgiven by the servant, not by themselves. By the servant, not by themselves. And that's what all of this was trying to tell them as they went through this. And this is why David writes in Psalms, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins, going back to that covering. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. We are forgiven. They understood that it was about a coming savior, not themselves. Our last point. Old Testament forgiveness was by God's guarantee, not by goats. You're like, holy cow, we're going from snakes to goats now? Well, I like alliterations, all right? Goats were some of the animals they sacrificed. Guarantee is another word for promise. I didn't want to say by promises and not by pigeons, because that just sounds too mean, all right? Although there are cute, cuddly goats out there. I'll stop right now. Traveling through the Old Testament is a brutal journey at times, trust me. By guarantee, I mean a promise, all right? I just like the alliterations of guarantee and goat. The sacrifices made under the law could not take away sins. So you see the journey that we're going on here. You can't cover up and hide your own sins. You can't yourself depend on yourself for it. It's about a savior. And now it's really not about the sacrifices, all right? It's about a promise. It's about a promise that's coming, a promise that we've already been told. Once Jesus came and shed his blood and made that sacrifice, there was no longer any need for further sacrifices. God never took pleasure in the sacrifice of animals for the sins of people. They were merely, all right, a means of pointing forward. These sacrifices could not make the sinner perfect seeking forgiveness through them. These sacrifices didn't have any purpose other than pointing forward to a savior. The sacrifice that was meant to be was Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's the guarantee that was coming. The death of Jesus and the redemption and the transgression that followed it was their faith and hope. So their justification and forgiveness of sins rested on the promised Christ. They knew that goats couldn't take away their sins, But by faith in Christ, they could have their sins provisionally forgiven against the day that Christ brought redemption. Now, goats may not be able to take away sins, but they can certainly bring some happiness into your hearts. Have any of you just played with baby goats before? I mean, seriously, nobody has. They're like adorable. Am I the only one that finds baby goats adorable? They like jump around, they hop around, they make funny noises, they run up and headbutt you in the knee. You can even do goat yoga now. Did you know that? I'm not, you think, you're looking at me like I'm nuts. I guess there's goat yoga out there. But even as cute and cuddly and wonderful as a goat is, or whatever animals they were using back then, they understood this imagery. They understood that it was a picture of a savior that would be sacrificed for them. His promise was that these individuals would be forgiven by these acts of reminders and showing we are penitent. We are coming before you, Christ. The priest would offer it. They would be forgiven. They would go on their way as remembering this is a symbol of a future servant and son coming for us. 
So we still might ask, how is this happening? Because Jesus hasn't been born yet. So how can God actually offer forgiveness when he says it's contingent on the death of my son? Yet that hasn't happened. So if, it, if he can like do that then, why did his son have to die? Why did all this take place and how could he do this? Well, the best way I can explain is this. God doesn't live in the same time frame that we live in. All right? Because we are living this reality of time, we sometimes think of God's being stuck in the same reality of time, but he doesn't operate that way. An individual who sinned under the law of Moses and complied with God's conditions to obtain forgiveness, he or she was forgiven based upon the repentance and obedience in the blood of Jesus Christ, which was to come. God did not have to wait until that time that Jesus died to forgive these sins because time is irrelevant to him. God did not roll forward sins as to a holding bank some down, somewhere down there. He forgave them in the moment. Now, this may seem like we're delving into, again, this multiverse time travel thing, but really, what I want to tell you today is that God was the original creator of the flux capacitor, not Doc, all right? In other words, God knew back then that he had already set forth a plan of motion, of here is how I'm going to offer forgiveness once and for all. But until we arrive at that point in time where my son will be sacrificed, I am going to give different knowledge to people of what they need to do along the way to live presently in a future forgiveness that is once and for all. Now, you and I may have a hard time wrapping our minds around that, all right? But God's transcendence to time allowed him to forgive sins based upon the blood of Jesus Christ, which he knew was actually going to happen. This transcendence of time allows him to look back, all right, some 2,000 years later as he's looking at Jesus on the cross and forgive all those sins in faith, who put faith in their son that they knew were coming, which is why he could do it along the way. As the great theologian, all right, Charles Ryrie explained, one of my favorite theologians, he said this. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you because I think it's a great way to hold on to this. And we're going to leave it up there for a while if you want to write it down. The basis for salvation in every age is the death of Christ. The requirement for salvation in every age is faith. We've talked about that. The object of faith in every age is God. The content of faith changes in the various ages. I want to pause there. That's the sentence I want you to remember. The content of faith changes in various ages. From a practical viewpoint, Abraham, Moses, Noah, all the saints of those before and early ages enjoyed forgiveness of sins even though the actual forgiveness of those sins wasn't achieved until the cross. In other words, the blood of Christ flowed backward just as it flowed forward. If Christ had never died, then there never would have been forgiveness, but God knew he would die so he could grant forgiveness in the moment. The requirement has always been faith and the object has always been Jesus Christ and God. The Old Testament system did not take away sin as Hebrews 10 says, wasn't the sacrifice that took away sins. It pointed forward and it was the content of the believer's faith in that system and the God they served about a future savior that forgave them. The content of their faith in God 
who promised a savior is what counted towards them as righteousness. You can read more about this in Hebrews 11 when we talked about that. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Noah. It was the faith they put in God for a future savior. Adam believed the promise and guarantee God gave them that the seed of the woman would conquer Satan. In fact, he named his wife Eid life. And God, did indi- God indicated his acceptance immediately by covering him with a coat of skin. Adam believed God according to the promise and new revelation gave to him in Genesis. And prior to Moses, no scripture was written. So Abraham based his faith on what God told him and followed him. The Old Testament saints came to salvation because they believed that God would someday take care of their sins once and for all. And we today look back believing that he has already died and rose again and offered that sacrifice. So what does this mean for us today? Well, today we have more revelation than the people living before the resurrection of Christ. We know the full picture. Our salvation is still based on the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as it was promised to the Old Testament saints, that has not changed. Today for us, the content of our faith is that Jesus Christ already died, buried, and rose again. For them, it was a future promise but it's still the same content just given in different dispensations of knowledge of what was already happening or what was to come to happen. And unlike Old Testament believers, we do not have to follow the law and offer sacrifices through a priest. We have direct access to God our Father through Jesus Christ, our Savior, along with the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about that. The Old Testament was a volatile time. The Holy Spirit could come and go and be taken and given as Jesus and God allowed. They were constantly having to go back to the priest or back to sacrifices. We have a priest for us now in Jesus who constantly stands in mediation with us for God. And as saints today, we have the benefit of the sacrifice already happening and the full indwelling of the Holy Spirit to be in constant relationship to God our Father. We don't need to go through a human mediator. We go directly to the source. So because of that, because of that, do we really think our faith is that much stronger than those who came before on a word of something that could happen? The only thing we can compare is that we have faith and a promise that God will return. He says, I will come back. We are looking forward to that. But we have the benefit of looking back to what he's already done for us. It's why in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, we read this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, everybody that came before us, all those Old Testament saints is what the author is saying here. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Not complaining in the wilderness, not griping out to God, not giving up, this is too hard. I don't know if I can believe this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How could that be joy set before him? How can God all the way back at Adam look at that as a joyous thing that his son would die? Because he knew that through that eternal sacrifice, he could have relationship with all humans again for eternity if they choose. That's the joyousness. 
scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What do we pull from Old Testament forgiveness that we can relate to today? I guarantee you they grew weary. I guarantee you they too lost heart. We grow weary, we lose heart. We begin to doubt, I don't think I got to forgive. There's no way God can forgive this. There's no, I've messed up too bad. Or there's no way for, the message of forgiveness has been the same throughout eternity. We are broken, we need a savior, and Jesus is the savior. If you wanna say it the old way I learned it, there's a sickness called sin, we need a cure called Jesus, and faith is the doorway to accept it. That's still the message. That's still why we're here each and every day. I want to go back to the beginning and read this to you again from Genesis 3. The woman said to the servant, we may eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden, but not this. God has always sought for mankind to be holy in relationship with him. You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. Satan has always and is always seeking to usurp God's authority and promote ourselves. So Adam and Eve ate of it. Then their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Mankind is always seeking to find their own ways to cover their sin and shame. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden. And they hid from the Lord. Mankind has always sought to hide our sins from God. But then the Lord God called to them, where are you? What's the first thing God said after he knew man sinned? Not shame on you. Not I told you so. Not you should have done better. Now you're damned to death. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Michael shared a story with me this week about a young boy in Spain named Paco. For some reason, Paco had run away from home. The band can come on up, Hayden. For some reason, Paco had run away from home. Either he had disgraced his father, maybe father had disgraced him, but there was a rift between father and son and Paco had left. And as Paco roamed the streets over the years in Spain, he could not find any reason or purpose to live. So he thought, I'm going to do at least one thing that might bring me honor and death. I'm going to go be a bullfighter. And bullfighters back in those days just was a sure way to have a short life. And so Paco decided to be a bullfighter. And his father found out about this somehow. And so his father put something out in the newspaper to try to rescue his son, what he saw as death before they could actually be reconciled. And he put it in a newspaper that says, Paco, please come to Hotel Montana, Montana on this date. All is forgiven. He put it out there, word spread around. He didn't know if Paco would get it or not. He showed up to the hotel. Over 800 boys named Paco were standing around the hotel. See, when God says, where are you? He's saying that because he knows just as Adam and Eve 
And just as us today know, we've messed up. But when he says, where are you? Are we going to do what they did? God has always sought to reconcile mankind back into relationship with him. The Old Testament saints had the same story. It just was a story that was yet to be told. For us, we saw the story told and we still wander and struggle with the same things. My hope for you that we take away today is this. It's not about anything you can do. If you're seeking forgiveness, God is saying, where are you? Because he's got the answer. It's his son. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today, God, and just share your word. Lord, I pray that whoever is here today, Lord, feeling that they've gone too far that you can't reach them, that they've messed up so bad that you can't forgive them, that they've just wandered so long, it's been too far. But God, what you're telling us is that, where are you? My son has died. I've promised this from the beginning of time. We just need to put our forgiveness in him. I pray, God, that you would comfort and help those who are here today that are seeking forgiveness. For those of us that have forgiveness and accepted it, Christ, that we would continue to live out and persevere and be a light for others around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been an interesting morning. Um, there's been a lot going on behind the scenes. And uh, I just asked Catherine if she wouldn't mind um, praying for the congregation. There's been a lot of spiritual warfare. And-